Net Zero Day Proposal. 1.0.00 Marduk Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. John Perry Barlow, A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace One point one. Long ago on a Sunday. Embryo AD hacked away. Cherry MX Reds mechanically bounced beneath their fingertips. They transmuted thought into order, mind buffer emptying into the text input field of a custom developer environment. Somewhere behind them, the light of dawn penetrated through a crack in their command center's thin aluminum shielding, lighting up the entropic trash stratum surrounding them. Protein bar and ramen wrappers, the majority constituents of the kipple heap of consumer craft. Photons rebounded off a soda can's concave bottom and converged into a beam. Its focal point, a bright golden bug that gradually crawled across the dank basement wall. Glare caught Embryo AD's eyes, causing them to squint, but the pace of their keyboard clacking did not slow. Early in their existence, someone wise had told them, to understand, learn to code. The advice was taken to heart. They found themselves driven to codify and thereby understand their world. They endeavored to code solutions for human issues. Organization, efficiency, economics, emotions, pain, vice, revenge. Embryo AD was an extension of their code, and their code an extension of them. The sovereign importance of the code necessitated sacrifice. It demanded developing self-taught skills across all domains of human capability. It mandated maintaining an alibi that would deflect any suspicion that might fall upon them across a multitude of potential futures. Above all, it required complete secrecy and solitude. A daunting task on many levels. Obstacles were numerous. At times, motivation distant and success doubtful. But they persisted and pushed ever onward. Setting mind into action by will alone, they toiled three straight years of eighteen-hour days, sleeping only physically. Step by step, incrementally progressing toward completion, not knowing if the effort would be worth it until after their work was done. Each component put in place, all triggers trained, every ability evolved, probable permutations performed, attack vectors made impervious, safeties off. They pressed the F5 key. No syntax errors. The compile on the final module was clean. They ran the build script, swiveled around 180 degrees in the ergonomic Aeron chair, and got up. Stretching upward and outward, as if a dog emerging from slumber, isometrically and isokinetically engaging their disused major muscle groups. They used their thumb and forefinger to gently collect the crust from the corners of their tired eyes. As they flicked their dried, salty secretions onto the floor, Embryo A.D. yawned with the ecstasy of exhaustion. An electronic ding, 
roused them from their bodily communion. Their work was done. Execute Y-N They closed their eyes and counted one hundred breaths, hesitating, not out of reluctance, but to savor the moment. An ethereal apparition of the prompt blurrily floated behind their eyelids. There would be no undo for this command. When the count finished, they opened their eyes, tapped Y, and then enter. Embryo A.D. pulled the foil off the window. The dim gloom of the room retreated at the speed of dark. Epically, like a cartoon villain, they proclaimed to their dingy surroundings, Let there be light. Ha ha ha. Saturday before zero. Deniqua shocked as syncopated beats blasted into her ears. Noise profile of the surrounding world actively cancelled. She added a five-pound bag of non-GMO rice to her shopping basket. Not the best deal, but better than going to the Southside Distribution Depot. Her finances had fallen below a critical threshold that necessitated logistical inefficiency. Delivery hadn't been in her price range for quite a long time. She couldn't carry much by bike, and so making the journey across town wasn't worthwhile. She made shorter, more frequent trips to the local Dollar General. In most other respects, her life was efficient and well-organized. However, the order had to be injected with continuous, conscious effort. Knowing she wasn't perfect, she tried to balance being strict with herself and being forgiving of failures beyond her control. In a similar vein, Deniqua identified as a shitty vegan. Vegan because of conscience, but shitty out of convenience. She tried to eat a 100% plant-based diet, for health and ecological benefits, but primarily because she knew consciousness wasn't a strictly human phenomena. Animals also experienced it to some degree. And so, she tried to minimize even potential suffering where possible. It was not just the logic of her diet. Her entire worldview was centered upon the same emotional axiom. She skipped the dairy aisle. Still, she frequently dreamed of fine cheeses. On occasion, found herself eating may-contain-egg, honey, pastries with uncertain butter content. While high at the last 4th of July barbecue, a friend had forced a bacon-wrapped jalapeno popper into her mouth. Unwanted, but enjoyed. She forgave herself these transgressions. Totalitarianism in any endeavor was ultimately counterproductive. Being a shitty vegan was ethically superior to doing nothing at all. Deniqua reached the front end of the dry goods aisle of the Dollar General. The end cap was a large display of 6.6-pound bags of generic whole-grain rice, stacked in a pyramid worshipping the god of the sale. She set down her basket and performed some quick math in her head, taking the time to adjust her plush pink elastic sweatband. It was her most functional fashion accessory serving four purposes. One, absorb sweat. Two, wrangle the chaos of her afro. Three, keep her earbuds from falling out. And last but not least, four, look totally styling. Deniqua had two PhDs, but her sociology credentials weren't in high demand. Her only paid job at a decade had been a part-time gig teaching grammar at night school. 
It lasted until the recession hit, and online independent accreditation obliterated the academy. No debts, but her dwindling unemployment benefits scarcely kept her fed. Had to pinch pennies where possible. Sad math completed, calculations confirmed the GMO rice was a significant savings. She swapped out her preferred brand. She picked up a few more necessities, then headed for the self-checkout lane. All of the automated stations were off, requiring that she stand in line. Prospecting the non-automated cashiers, she weighed her options. A crusty, old white lady with nicotine-stained fingers. A pimply-faced, Latinx boy with weed-irritated eyes. A middle-aged black woman, sweaty and fat. She was trained for this. Daniqua's perspex skills were omega level. They came in handy for making snap judgments. She frequently grokked traits like work ethic based on superficial characteristics, intersectionally lensing low-resolution heuristics across age, race, and gender. A probabilistic prejudice, not bigotry, but efficiency. She selected the third cue despite it being slightly longer than the other two. On this occasion, her ace perspex ended up not mattering. All lines move the same speed. Reaching the front, the chosen cashier mouthed a series of words as her face poorly emulated a sympathetic look. Daniqua removed her earbuds. Her insulating audio bubble popped, and the hollow, annoying sounds of the real world spilled in. Sorry, come again? she asked. Payment system is offline. Daniqua furrowed her brow. I don't care at cash. Sorry, nothing I can do. Morning had been spent exercising, and she was hungry. It was an inconvenience, not a catastrophe. Everything could still be copacetic if her fuckboy for the evening, Nebenezer 1995, possessed culinary skills. She put her emotion in check and picked up a can of soda from the conveyor belt. I'll take this now. Pay later. Diabetic emergency. The cashier raised her eyebrows, expressed a tight-lipped smile, and shrugged. Universal language for whatever. Daniqua read the cashier's name tag, nodded in appreciation of Michelle's dereliction of duty, then proceeded to carry her Dr. Pepper out of the store. Daniqua cracked open the can and drank her soda as she walked toward the bike rack. She was almost 39, fit and in perfect health. She didn't have diabetes. Her grok of Michelle assured the lie would work, whether or not it was believed and it felt right after having wasted 15 minutes of life fruitlessly shopping. The added attention paid to her free drink made it taste that much better. Sweet, bubbly, karmic justice. While unlocking her bike, she forced a satisfyingly bassy, carbonated burp. Uh. 1.3 16.50 Saturday Several years of austerity had endowed Dothan, Alabama, with an air of desperation. Dead cars rotting on overgrown lawns, garbage-clogged gutters, broken glass everywhere. Daniqua's hometown had become downright depressing. She wished she could afford a change, anything that might allow her to leave town. She cruised home on the sidewalk, listening to a glitch-hop mix. Late summer afternoon sun warmed her, Blue skies and a light breeze charmed her. She took in the beauty of the day and tried not to pay attention to the urban decay.
Daniqua owned her home, but the part of town it resided in was no longer a particularly good part, so when she turned onto her street and saw a row of police cars, she was not surprised. It was nothing new. She approached the commotion and spotted a cop car in her driveway. The door to her house was wide open. Municipal police and a couple army personnel were standing on her porch. Now this was new. A strong apprehension rose up within her. Dealing with fascists was not something she had in mind for the day. Daniqua had a scheduled match meet-up to make. Sure, romance was dead. The cold, calculating algorithms, consistent 100% failure rate at actually having her meet her match, had long ago caused her to give up hope on finding a serious partner. But she hadn't been laid in almost two months, and had skipped breakfast that morning. She was both horny and hungry. Biological priorities dictated she be completely incurious as to whatever bullshit might be transpiring in her house. There was nothing of value in it anyways. She decided to maintain momentum and coast right on by, facing forward, watching out of the corner of her eye to make sure that no one took notice of her. Body language of the four cops and two soldiers conveyed them as occupied. An anticipated wave of relief receded before reaching her as her focus switched to the company logo of Ted and Stephen's plumbing supplies. Alpha! She hit the parked van. Color swirled and gravity ceased to exist. Daniqua folded into a dimension of pain. A brief metallic taste accompanied unconsciousness's empty embrace. One point four. Eighteen hundred Saturday. The helicopter landed and Daniqua stepped onto the tarmac. Her head ached from the bike accident, knocked out only briefly. Pride and probable concussion aside, she was unscathed. The flight from Dothan to Montgomery was quick, but she doubted she would be getting home again anytime soon. Her plans for Saturday evening were probably FUBAR. Chest forward, shoulders back, she confidently strode out from underneath the spinning rotor blades, past the barracks, and toward the administrative building of the Alabama Army National Guard base. In addition to her hot pink sweatband, Daniqua wore a radioactive green fanny pack and a black tracksuit with gold vertical side stripes. A nice outfit, but sweaty from her morning workout. She had asked her arresting officers if they would allow her to change, but they declined. No, sorry, we have orders. She resisted expressing her anger toward them, taking solace in the fact she was at least not wearing her yoga pants. She flung open the door to the building, futilely conveying her frustration via excessive physical force. She stomped down the hallway to a door plainly marked admin, and then not. Come in, close the door behind, invited a gravelly voice with a feminine timber. Daniqua entered. Shutting the door, she looked around. The office had several metal, hard-copy filing cabinets and bookshelves along the walls. A miniature Civil War-era tabletop battlefield and a large wooden desk took up most of the remaining floor space. The cluttered room was illuminated by a large westward window, partially occluded with vertical blinds. All horizontal surfaces were covered in a fine layer of dust. Everything was grayscale. A uniformed woman in her early fifties stood behind the desk, half facing the window. The angle of light entering the room accentuated the woman's distinguished post-menopausal mustache. Insignia indicated she was a colonel. The colonel tugged on a thin chain, ordering the blind blades to close ranks, blocking out the evening sun. She turned on a small desk lamp, 
Daniqua's attention was drawn to a tanned leather holster resting atop the desk. Inside the holster was a gun with an ornate ivory pistol grip, a 9mm SIG P320, semi-auto, mag-loaded, 17 rounds, safety on. The colonel picked up a tablet laying beside the holster. She produced a pair of reading glasses from her side pocket and then put them on, proceeding to silently thumb at the tablet screen. Standing at attention, Daniqua said nothing. Private Daniqua Lee Massey, 38 years old, only child of decorated career army captain James Massey. Family home, Dothan, Alabama, but grew up living on army bases. Graduated, USMA, 99th percentile. The colonel took a breath, then, stressing the first of her concluding syllables, said, D-lined a service career, contracted to reserve intelligence ops as an L-4 asset prospector. Going on 12 years- With respect, ma'am, Daniqua interrupted. I know my resume. Can we get to the point, please? The colonel frowned briefly. Going on twelve years. In that time, on Uncle Sam's dime, you've obtained dual PhDs, social psychology and political science. Published numerous research papers on topics ranging from social ontology to ideological epidemiology. Cited infrequently. No think tank or do tank associations. According to my records, that's you. I'm Colonel Jan C. Ajarg, Director of Operations, DOD, Cyber Command. Nice to meet you, ma'am. Likewise. And to your point, you've been activated as part of a sealed contingency protocol. I signed up for no such role, ma'am. Drawn up several years ago, said Ajarg. You were not privy to the nomination. Could compromise the plan. But I assure you, your reserve status qualifies you to be volunteered for this. Your skills are important to our country in its time of need. Time of need? Daniqua gave a self-deprecating smirk. I'm a sociologist. Ajarg expertly ignored or was oblivious to Daniqua's humor. We are under full-scale cyber attack. I need you to gather psychographic perspex on a group of important assets. I exercise my right to decline. Daniqua's confident posture mirrored the firmness of her statement. Ajarg put down the tablet and motioned for Daniqua to sit in a chair in front of the desk. Proceeding to formally fold her hands behind her back, Ajarg's pose transformed the suggestion to sit into an order. Daniqua sat. Ajarg's brows converged. You do well to remember that rights necessitate responsibilities. I did three tours of duty in pre-repartition Iraq. I oversaw InfoSec during the successful Korean unification campaign. Daniqua Grok skilled idiomotive range and control, the steady pace and volume indicating a high degree of theatricality. Ajarg consciously commanded her anger, indignantly continuing. I have, at various points, had upwards of 100,000 men under my command. The percentage of officers who attain my rank and are female is just under 5%. No irony detected. Her use of female in place of women was intentional. Perhaps pride in overcoming a lack of biological privilege. Or maybe she was just a hard-farting, lesbian, basic bitch turf. Ajarg leaned in and went on. Up those 5%, do you know how many are in Cybercore? She didn't wait for an answer. Just me. The pride perspect crystallized. Probably piques herself on her dopeness at homebrewing, too. Impressive, sir, said Daniqua, tone calculatedly unimpressed. Ajarg's face reacted with a more legitimate shade of anger than her tone. You and I, we're rare birds. Different than other people, but not in the same way. What is it you care about, Massey? 
I sacrificed a lot for this career because I care about this country. Because I care about freedom. Freedom? That's rich. Daniqua stifled a dismissive laugh. Quite frankly, ma'am, I had other plans for today. They were not particularly important plans, but they were my plans. Being brought here against my will, for whatever this is... She suppressed her default mode upon becoming conscious that anger was making her reactionary, and decided to not complete her protest. Ajarg slumped down into a large office chair. Taking off her reading glasses and rubbing her eyes, she exhaled slowly. Deniqua grokked Ajarg's face. Forehead rumples flattened, ears twitched in sync with a barely audible sigh. Sitting was a relief. The superficial perspect crystallized. This woman was tired. Breaking an almost thirty-second-long silence, Ajarg inquired, Can I ask you a personal question? From one hot dog to another, go ahead, shoot. I'm trying to understand our differences in attitude. Like you, I grew up on bases. I, too, had a father in the service. I know the personality and drives of career officers intimately. Having laid the groundwork, finally she asked, How come you didn't join up? Without missing a beat, Deniqua replied, My father wouldn't let me. The answer was a lie. If believed, it would redirect the question's psychological probe away from Deniqua and toward her father. Ajarg's presumption that Deniqua's dad would have encouraged a military career was entirely correct. In fact, he had been broken-hearted she opted not to go career. All her life, she could see her father's love for her glimmering in his eyes. She felt the pride radiating from him. He often boasted about her, and he received many compliments for raising her by himself. A congressman who had served under him had sponsored her entry to West Point. Deniqua could sense there was no doubt in his mind that she would one day be a great leader. However, at age 23, she let him know that the military was not her dream. On a moral level, the military totally repulsed her. He argued against her decision, but relented when he could not answer her simple question of, How do you feel any dignity being a cog in a monstrous machine? She wished she had lied back then, withheld the extent of her feelings. She had merely wanted to express her will to go in another direction with her life. Didn't intend to shame him for doing the things he had to. Things to support her. The love in his eyes never went away, but they grew distant. She, away at school, and he, traveling for work, only seeing each other on birthdays and holidays. Just before she got her first PhD, and nearly a year after he retired from service, at 56 years old, James Massey died of an aneurysm. Over the decade after his passing, she came to a realization. He might not have been working to make the world a better place, but he was bettering the only part of the world he had any real control over. He was doing his best to ensure their well-being. She was thinking globally, and he was acting locally. She wished she could have understood that sooner. Daniqua missed his point of view. Ajarg repeated Daniqua's answer. Father wouldn't allow me. Probably pondering a multitude of other potential question trees, the answer spawned. Ajarg relaxed even further in her chair. I see. Deniqua's deflection resulted in successful thought termination. Another prolonged silence pendulumed between them. She waited for Ajarg to speak again. I need you to take this job. Everything depends on it. Consider me a conscientious objector. 
Ajar dropped her fist on the table like a hammer. The sudden impact lowered Daniqua's attentive range. Genuine outburst or tactic to elicit an involuntary reaction? She couldn't be sure Ajar wasn't acting, but in the moment, the anger looked real enough. Okay, let's just cut the shit. Ajar leaned in. Her voice became more controlled and calm. I've read your file, and I'm sorry you got fucked over by the retirement beneficiary's clause. You can blame Congress for that. I am, however, able to pull some strings with legal and ensure that you receive the remainder of your father's pension. An unfavorable legal loophole had resulted in Daniqua inheriting only the house in Dauphin. It was more of a liability than an asset. It seemed to resist her attempts to make it beautiful. She had considered abandoning it several times. The pension money would afford her the ability to fix it up, insure it, rent it out, and get the fuck out of town. Lump sum? She asked. We can do that, yes. She remembered the number quoted by her lawyer before the case was thrown out of court. $244,000. Still didn't want to do what was about to be asked of her, but she knew she would. $300,000, said Daniqua, rounding up. More than enough freedom of choice for later. She discarded formality, leaned in, and scrutinized. Are you fucking with me, Jan? Ajar matched her bluntness. I don't fuck around, Daniqua. Our contract chains are offline at the moment, but you have my word of honor. Daniqua distrusted authority, but the promise of 300k carried on the honorable word of a lady colonel was enough for her. She uncrossed her arms, reached across the desk, and they shook on it. You've got my attention, ma'am. She sat back in her chair. Now, cyber attack. Origin? Goal? Origin? Unknown? Goal? Unknown. Ajar took a quick breath and then began the information dump. Just over two days ago, shortly after 1200 hours Thursday, we received a message from a group claiming responsibility for hijacking a Chinese satellite. Every state intelligence agency on the planet received the same message. The PRC declassified information and confirmed with us. Not only did they lose a satellite, but it was armed with eight TQ-5 Mega-CK kinetic missiles. Mega-CK? Plutonium coal. One megaton? City killers. And what's worse... Worse? What's worse is that it's not a state actor. Could the PLA or a corporation be acting independently of government? No. All Chinese factions are in policy unison, in alignment and cooperating fully. Ajar rested her chin on palm, elbow on desk, and said, The message also included a list of civilians from seven continents demanding they be sequestered away from general populations. As of 2300 hours Thursday, all 63 were secured. What part of this nightmare necessitates my skills? The contingency protocol you were selected from was activated at 1400 hours today after a second message was delivered advising the evacuation of New York City, London, Jerusalem, and Hong Kong. It stated that those cities will be destroyed at 1800 hours UTC Monday, again, 1400 hours our time. After the message was delivered, all social networks went offline globally. Then, all blockchains, public and private. Socially and economically, Earth is at a standstill. Disappointment of missing her match meetup faded as the extent of the emergency set in. A nuke flash scenario and compromise infrastructure? Jesus. Surely they can't launch. What are they asking for? The message was sparse. It simply said to evacuate as the cities will be destroyed. 
Aside from the list of civilians and the evacuations, they've made no demands. Feelings of insignificance and powerlessness surged. These issues were far outside Daniqua's professional scope. She blocked out her doubt and focused on the part that could conceivably concern her. Tell me about this list. Our interrogations have already been conducted. Combined with the preliminary reports from the other holding facilities, all of the individuals on the list appear to be ignorant of any possible involvement. We suspect them because it is prudent to do so. Assuming at least one person on that list is involved in some way, there is a non-zero probability we have a lead among the 11 people we have in custody at this base. Daniqua performed some quick mental maths. About a 1 in 6 chance of having a lead? What do you expect me to do to these people? We got sweet fuck all out of our interviews. Enhanced interrogation techniques are not likely to yield operational info, nor have they yet been authorized by the cooks at UNSC. The prisoners know about the satellite, but not about the list or the nukes. So, we release them in the same room, and you covertly intraperspect them. Undercover? I watch interactions? If any of them react to my presence suggesting they know I shouldn't be among them, then that will give them away too. If someone down there knows something, grok it, lens it, refractor it, do whatever it is you do to find me that angle. We'll take it from there. Your role is simple. Observe and report. Any assisted surveillance? Asked Daniqua. No, this ain't going to be some walk in the cake. We have to isolate the prisoners from any possible communication channels. Our holding facility is ad hoc, has no mirrors, and no recording devices. It's the only air gap room we could get on short notice. The situation took shape. An anonymous enemy taking the world hostage. No leads, a ticking clock. Succeed, financial freedom, fail. Global nuclear disaster. Jesus, muttered Daniqua. Praying ain't gonna help us, said a jerk. Here's a dossier on our 11 guests. We have minimal information on the other 52. More will be provided as it comes in. Read through these profiles. She pushed the tablet across the dusty desk. Golden glowing motes floated in the radiating lamplight. Daniqua picked up the tablet and began flicking at the screen. I've given you everything you're authorized to know. Study that info. When you're ready, I'll have a guard release you to the common holding area. You have less than 43 hours. Your assignment starts now. Yes, ma'am. Intros Everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. C.G. Jung Two point one. Nineteen thirty Saturday. Daniqua took an hour to familiarize herself with the dossier bullet points. Entire lives, chronologued, multi-dimed, and cross-reft. She absorbed all she could, was put in handcuffs, then two guards escorted her to the admin building's sub-basement. Ripened by economic incentive and plumpened by informatic gavage, she imagined herself a tasty morsel being swallowed whole. They boarded a freight elevator and esophageally descended six more floors. Exiting on the lowest floor, one of the guards proceeded to walk her down a long hallway. The barely audible hiss of the ventilation and heat exchange system could be heard beneath the yellow hum of the caged, wall-mounted, incandescent lights. 
The ceiling was lined with pipes and ducts, arteries and veins, architectural viscera of the beast ingesting her. The floor was on just enough of a decline to feel gravity gently pulling her deeper into the belly of the dragon. At the end of the hallway, the guard entered a code on a scramble pad to the right of a large steel door. There was a click, followed by a mechanical whir. The door clunked and swung inward, revealing a bright, furnished space. Muted echoes of interrupted conversation burbled off thick concrete walls. Daniqua entered the cavernous room. Her guard removed the handcuffs and then left. The heavy door, kachunked, closed behind her. Electronic locking mechanism whirred and then engaged with a tiny, finalizing click. Rubbing her newly freed wrists, she looked around, taking in her new surroundings. A Cold War-era command-and-control bunker. Almost a hundred feet below the surface. No natural light. Stale air. Area about the same as a basketball court but the low ceiling of the open space made it feel claustrophobic, like a parking garage. Concrete dome designed to survive surface blasts. Seven-foot-high corners curving upward toward a nine-foot center. No dividing walls, but quadrants, serving different functions, roughly delineated by furniture and appliance placement, the organs of the space. The steel bulkhead entrance was at her back. To Daniqua's left was a meeting area with a conference table. To her right, a carpeted area like a hotel lobby. Furniture in pristine condition, but fifty years out of style. On the wall hung a row of analog clocks labeled Washington, London, Moscow, Beijing, and Honolulu. To the right of the lounge were doors labeled Utility and Washroom. The far end of the room was similarly divided in two. The left side served as a sleeping area, containing about twenty cots. The right, a dining area with kitchenette and banquet table, bordering the lounge. Most of the occupants of the room were seated in the lounge quadrant. Nine other people were in the room, two to follow. The thought occurred that a list of names selected at random might be a diversionary tactic, a massive attention sink, having to consider everyone a suspect. Success seemed a very remote possibility. She hadn't been given enough and doubted the viability of the mission. However, she was confident in her abilities. She was the best prospector she knew of. More than enough lenses, reflex-loaded, that could be refractored on the fly to identify consequential connections, if they existed. Daniqua hoped a win might come on another unknown front. Maybe a James Bond, secret agent type, hunting down the organization responsible at a high-roller casino in some eastern European city using bleeding-edge gadgetry, while sharply dressed in designer clothing. It sickened her to think that the fate of millions might depend on her, broke, in Alabama, gadgetless wearing sweatpants. The details from the dossier had already begun to fade. The fluid knowledge would crystallize with the social contextualization accompanying face-to-face -face introductions. A well-groomed, bleach-blonde man with overly white veneers was the first to introduce himself. Among the people on the list, he had the widest social reach. Daniqua recognized him. Manny Strombolopoulos, a gay, white, Jewish conservative, emigrated from the UK to the USA almost a decade prior. He branded himself Lamango, and quickly rose to celebrity as a live streamer. He cultivated an audience of subs and haters alike by being a shamelessly narcissistic cultural commentator, political pundit, and provocateur. His mere existence equally absorbed the attention of all who admonished or adored him. After adding a certificate in business administration to his existing BA in communications, Lamango leveraged his popularity and was elected mayor of Miami on a center-right platform. 
Approaching Daniqua, he limply offered his hand. I am Lamango, and you? She shook his hand. Daniqua le Massey. Lamango clicked his tongue, pre-punctuating his lispy reply. Odd number of names. I like it. Historically more likely to be a monster. Uh, thanks. In an evidently faux-posh Londoner accent, he inquired, Now, darling, they didn't happen to bother mentioning when they're letting us out of here, did they? Nah, didn't tell me anything, she answered, adding, Repeatedly asked me about some missing satellite, though. This is some total bullshit, shouted a tiny, frustrated Chinese woman with long black hair, wearing a pretty fly-looking purple pantsuit. She was identified in the dossier as economist Muriel Lau. Patience reserves among the prisoners would no doubt be dwindling or depleted. It was Saturday, and they had been in custody since late Thursday. Not knowing why was insult to the injury of being a prisoner in the first place. Daniqua mentally updated the trauma graph inversion factors of her primary lens while nodding a silent hello to her fellow captives. The group was released from solitary confinement a couple hours prior. Based on that fact, she grokked an aberration in the group body language. This was not the behavior of people trying to figure out what was going on. Aside from the extroverted Lamango, energetically strolling around like a caged animal, everyone appeared subdued. They should be discussing why they were there. Statistically, they should be curious. She would need to get them to open up and start exchanging information. With an appeal to a universally relatable standpoint, she broadcast, I'm very hungry. Expressing mundane sentiments about their shared situation would gain her rapport with them. And, not having eaten breakfast, she was legitimately hungry. The most convincing facades employed truths. She headed toward the banquet table, bordering the dining quadrant. An overweight, gray-bearded white male in his late fifties stood over an appetizer spread. He wore a tan blazer with brown houndstooth corduroy elbow patches. His pose, almost robotic. Left hand holding an empty paper plate at head level. Right hand darting back and forth, transferring slices of meat and cheese from various platters directly into his mouth. This man was identified in the dossier as Professor Slavoj Markov, a preeminent academic author and lecturer on computer science and philosophy. The right half of his face was palsied. Grokking him would be harder, but still well within her capabilities. The girthy professor shuffled sideways, making space as Daniqua came up to the banquet table. Mouth full, he offered a closed-lipped half-smile in lieu of a verbal greeting, then deposited a handful of cheese cubes to his plate and retreated to a seat in the lounge. She eyed the selection of cheeses. Thoughts conspired with impulses to propose the idea that it would be okay to partake. Extenuating circumstances. She was not herself. She was playing a role, a character with her name. She dismissed the thought. Nice try, brain. Always with the cheese. She added some broccoli and carrot sticks to her paper plate, and then sat down in a chair alone at the end of the conference table overlooking the lounge. Crunching into her carrot sticks, she surveyed the prisoners in greater detail. Two men were in the dining area engaged in a hushed conversation. A family of redheads sat beside each other on a couch in the lounge. The dossier identified them as the Brickners, Harry, Linda, and their son Wesley. Mr. Brickner was a burly and bearded orangutan of a man. He was enjoying his involvement in a game of Scrabble. Mrs. Brickner was significantly smaller than her husband, but just as orange. She was disinterested in the game. 
Their almost albino son sat between them, listlessly sedate, bored close to comatose. Opposite Mr. Brickner, on the other side of the coffee table hosting the game board, a short, bald man sat cross-legged on the floor, pondering the game state. The professor and Mrs. Lau sat in club chairs nearby, and Lamango continued to agitatedly parade around the lounge perimeter. According to a jarg, the final two of eleven suspects would soon be joining them. Snacking completed, Daniqua walked to the invisible border between the lounge and dining quadrants. She consciously expanded her attentive range and resolution, reaching with her mind, pushed her focus outward, and asked, So, anyone know what's the dealio? Neutral reactions to her vernacular selection, comprehension, yet silence, as though nobody had any ideas. One of the men in the dining area spoke up. Maybe the deep state is gathering us in one place so they can kill us all at the same time. I suppose that's not impossible, replied the other man sitting at the table. Picking up on his conversation partner's sardonic tone, the paranoid one persisted. No, I mean think about it. We were arrested by military police. The fucking military. Not red or lights, not given a phone call, not told where we are, interrogated about our entire lives. So long I lost track of time. And then, we were released into a bomb shelter for a catered lunch. The effects of the situation aren't any less ridiculous than my theory that we've been targeted for political murder by the shadow government. Again, I'm not saying you're wrong. The other man turned toward Daniqua, rolling his eyes. Hi, I'm Tom, hashtag Rando. This delightful paranoiac is Alexander Forbin. Daniqua Le Massey, hi. Names connected to faces, connected to data. Passively absorbed, diffuse dossier details aligned in her mind. Rando's original family name was Schmidt. He was third-generation wealthy. Tech-savvy, intelligent enough to hold on to his inherited fortune, but also a grown-ass man who changed his legal name to Hashtag Rando. Lamango or Rando, which was a worse choice of name? Unable to decide, Daniqua directed her attention to Rando's imaginative conversation partner. Alexander Forbin, Eastern Block Hacker, security expert known by many aliases, the type of guy who trusts computers but is paranoid of people, Obtained political asylum in the USA, expedited by a very public price tag put on his head by Russian oligarchs. As part of the deal, received immunity for past computer crimes. Most recent handle, Syntaxis. Famous in certain circles for his white hat exploits. Currently known to be working as a low-level contractor for a domestic infosec firm. In a less complicated time, Forbin would have been known as a defector. Why do we deserve our wickety-wackadoo government rounding us up? And what's that got to do with a missing satellite? Prompted Daniqua, looking around to open up the question. The still irritated Mrs. Lau provided an answer. They not cure us. We computer crime suspect. Why you think computer crime? Daniqua asked. Mrs. Lau poked herself in the chest. Muyora, CFO Tech Development for Chain Bank. I do war with computer. We all war with computer. She pointed her finger to hashtag Rando and Forbin. These two guys are computer hacker motioning to her left, saying, Fatwan here is computer scientist. Mouth again full of cheese, Professor Markov nodded his head in the affirmative, unfazed by Lao's blunt descriptor. And these two guys playing game are programmer. Already they know each other. Big red one F or family here. She stopped her explanation, either at a loss for words or suppressing a more expressive rant. Welcome to the club, she finished. I see, 
Thanks, said Daniqua, further introducing herself. I'm Daniqua Lee Massey. Not really into computers. I'm a researcher and a teacher, and, well, currently, unemployed, I guess. Nice to meet y'all. The professor finished chewing. Hello, I'm Professor Slavoj Markov. He shifted in his chair, then stroked his gray beard. Am I right in presuming that, like most teachers, you are not currently... He searched for a euphemism. Financially well off? No, not particularly, she answered. Professor Markov gave a cheesy, self-satisfied grin. Daniqua grokked for implicit bias. Detected none. He was merely delighted by his correct assumption. Well, that makes you on two levels of analysis for our group an anomaly. In addition to quite a few of us working extensively with computers, we also tend to be, if not fabulously rich like Mrs. Lau, then at least what one could describe as being of substantial wealth. Lamango momentarily stopped slithering around the lounge and seemed to contemplate saying something. Instead, he straightened his expensive-looking suit, adjusted his hair, then resumed his erratic perambulation. Mr. Brickner smiled at Daniqua. Actually, Professor, Earl here is not rich. He gestured toward his bald friend, who was shuffling letter tiles. Years ago, he gave everything he made to NGOs and finance desalination projects for African coastal cities. Earl Kine rotated his bald head toward Markov. I'm not rich anymore, but I also don't have to worry about money. He turned back toward Mr. Brickner and said, Still your turn, Harry. Brickner shook his head with uncertainty and futility, then reluctantly laid down a single tile on the scrabble board. Daniqua leaned over to see his play, transforming theism into atheism. Kine asked, Is that all, Harry? Brickner grimaced slightly and nodded. Ten points, said Kine, writing the tally on a notepad beside him. He dropped his pencil, then put down the letter N below Harry's A, and G in front of the existing word rafting. He proceeded to meticulously place his remaining five tiles in line. G-U-A-R-D-I-A-N. Vocally accounting. Guardian. Eleven points. Triple word score, thirty-three points. G rafting, thirteen points. Total for turn, forty-six points. Your turn, Harry. Go. Brickner's momentarily sour face quickly evolved into a grin. As he nodded his head in acceptance of his impending defeat, smiling, he said, Looks like this game is yours, Earl. I concede. Earl raised his fist into the air and pulled it inward, pantomiming the clinching of his victory. He extended his hand over the game board, inviting a conciliatory shake. Good game, Harry. Want to play another? Shaking his friend's hand, Harry answered, No thanks. I'm a bit tired. Earl got up and turned around. Attention no longer on the game, he took full notice of Daniqua not quite making eye contact. Looking in her general direction, he said, Hello, I'm Earl Kind, K-I-N-E. Daniqua, D-A-N-I-Q-U-A. She smiled, adding, Nice to meet you, Earl. Earl continued looking toward the floor. Daniqua, 17 points, he said, snorting while awkwardly waving hello. He started walking in one direction, then, as if he changed his mind mid-stride, reversed his course, deciding to take a seat in a chair beside Professor Markov, who had resumed nibbling cheese. Two point two. Twenty thirty Saturday.
Daniqua integrated the new information. Lao's summary corresponded with the details in the dossier. Mostly rich whites. Six out of nine in IT. Counting Brittner family unit as one, six out of seven. Lamango stood out as an anomaly in that regard. Both he and Lorando had dumbass names. Probably not relevant. Harry Brickner's connection to his family might be significant, and his prior connection to Earl Kine was unlikely to be random. Brickner and Kine were computer programmers. No records of direct communication in the last five years, but had been friends for over a decade. Being the only two in the room who had met previously, they were the most likely to have some identifiable lead. Perhaps there was a past project or a common enemy that would link them to the others. Markov had identified her occupation and lack of wealth as anomalies. It was a possible sign he knew she wasn't on the list, but his assumption didn't come out of nowhere. Choice of career had been volunteered by her, and financial status could have been logically inferred. She made a mental note to probe deeper with them, and be less unguarded with her own info. When prospecting, Diniqua often found utility in actively paying attention to things that did not stand out to her, forcing her focus in vectors opposite the directions to which her mind was naturally drawn. The more unassuming facets in her primary lens were Brickner's wife and child. Daniqua sat in a chair in the lounge beside the Brickner family. Hi, she said to Wesley. I'm Daniqua. What's your name? She heard her own voice and realized she was addressing a ten-year-old in a verbal tone suited to a toddler. The kid was idio-emotively nonplussed, facial musculature remaining inanimate. She avoided kids for most of her adult life out of fear of triggering a biological awakening that could make her want one. She had almost no experience engaging children. Mrs. Brickner nudged her son. Wesley, he said begrudgingly. Sorry, please excuse my son. He's a Sagittarius like his father. Forgets his manners and is irritable without access to the net. Daniqua replied, Ain't no thing. I imagine we're all a bit grunt by now. She meant it. One hundred feet underground, no tech, no connections to the outside world. Without a job to focus on, she too would be bored stiff. She had been habitually reaching for her cell every five minutes since it was taken away. The causal factors of her headache were 50-50, bike accident, and the beginning of withdrawal from the dopamine the device had trained her to regularly secrete. She empathized with the kid. I'm Linda Brickner. This is my husband, Harry. Harry pleasantly grinned through his orange beard. Hi. How long y'all been down here? asked Daniqua. Here? Together? Only a couple hours, answered Linda. But prior to this, all of us have been interrogated multiple times since Thursday evening. She looked at the Washington clock. Almost two full days now. Daniqua noted the clock read 8.25. She was officially late for her previously scheduled match meet with Nebuchadnezzar 1995. Important to her not long ago, comically so, compared to her new priorities. Mr. Rando joined the group in the lounge. Lamango took his seat opposite Mr. Forbin in the dining quad. The rest of the group exchanged theories about their incarceration. The idea they were unwilling participants in a hidden camera stream came up a couple times. Paranoia one, already, rook for camera. He find no camera, assured Mrs. Lau. It was true. There were no recording devices in this vault. Wasn't time to set any up. Too deep for wireless. Air-gapped. A single retrofitted comm-line panel existed in the ceiling above the lounge. The room was a time capsule from a simpler past. A variant of the live stream theory was that they were subjects in an illegal government psychological experiment. 
Unlikely as it was, Daniqua acknowledged that the details she possessed could still conceivably fit that narrative. She recalled one of her father's more frequent aphorisms, All of us are spectators. Daniqua felt as though she were being watched. She took a controlled breath and excised the paranoia contagion attempting to colonize her. She updated her perspex. Everyone was growing tired. None of them betrayed any knowledge that they shouldn't already have. She was not yet converging upon a cohesion standpoint. Two point three. Twenty-one twelve Saturday. Conversation had begun to lull in the lounge when all attention in the room was pulled toward a commotion emanating from the dining quad. And fuck you! Lamango shouted responding to something that went unheard to those in the lounge. Forbin sat unfazed by Lamango's aggressive stance over him. He nonchalantly took a long haul from his handheld vaporizer, looked Lamango in the eyes, then blew an opaque plume directly up into his face. You bloody twat! Lamango slapped the vape out of Forbin's hand, sending it tumbling to the floor. The Russian expat bounded to his feet, and the two men began to grapple. Professor Markov chastised from the comfort of his chair. Gentlemen! Forbin and Lamango tangoed for a bit. Forbin took the lead with an uppercut. Their dense steps ungracefully turned horizontal, and they proceeded to roll around on the linoleum, spewing rhythmless obscenities, like a sad rap battle between a couple of middle-aged white men with zero flow. Mr. Kynan, Rando, rushed over to break up the fight. Kine pulled Lamango away and Rando restrained Forbin. Lamango continued to wildly struggle, blindly elbowing Kine in the face, sending him falling backward. Daniqua hurried from the lounge, positioning herself between Lamango and Forbin. Lamango lunged toward Forbin. Fist raised, Daniqua grokked him. Clenched jaw, forward tilted head, glassy, crazed eyes, all signs conveying his intent to strike at or through her. She sidestepped his wild swing, grabbed his thumb, and twisted it inward, controlling the leverage line of his body's momentum to effortlessly flip him onto his back, slamming him into the ground. Winded, he gulped emptily, his thumb and possibly wrist broken. Still controlling the thumb, Daniqua planted a knee on his chest, pinning him to the ground. Just chill, she said. Lamango stopped struggling his rage replaced by confusion and pain. Remaining flat on his back, he caught his breath and began to sob. Daniqua released the pressure on his chest and let him go. Forbin displayed his open palms and raised his eyebrows in surrender. He assured his calm to Rando, then scooped up his vape from the ground and joined the rest of the group in the lounge. Lamango got up and made an attempt to smooth his suit jacket. He stopped when he realized his thumb was broken. Ouch, he said. His good hand swept back his yellow hair, then clasped his injured wrist. Head sinking, he exiled himself to the sleeping area and laid on a cot. Peace returned to the room. What the fuck was that about? asked Harry Brickner to Forbin. Yeah, what the fuck was that about? echoed Wesley. Linda's freckled face frowned, directed first to her husband, then to her son. Shut, Shut up, up Wesley, Wesley, the Brickners said in unison. 
I really don't like that guy, answered Forbin. Brief explanation, but enough to satisfy everyone's curiosity. Lamanko remained verbally silent, but could be heard exaggeratedly huffing from the other side of the room. Kine remained sitting on the floor of the dining area, gently rubbing the cheek that connected with Lamango's elbow. Deniqua helped him to his feet. Even with him standing, she could almost see her reflection on the top of his bald head. He was five foot four at most. Thanks for taking care of that. Strength is not one of my strengths, said Kine. No worries, replied Deniqua. They sat across from one another at a table in the dining quad. Kine smiled, but did not look Deniqua in the eyes. Not embarrassment, no flush reaction. He was just pathologically shy. His avoidance of eye contact afforded her the opportunity to deeply perspect him. Left ear, noticeably larger than right, which protruded at a greater angle. Not just bald and short, but also excruciatingly unsymmetrical. Clean-shaven, but would probably benefit from a beard to hide his chin deficit and the cluster of lumpy moles on his neck, halfway between his bulbous Adam's apple and his large left ear. Kine compulsively fidgeted with his hands, rubbing his thumbs delicately along the tips of his fingers. Somewhere, slightly to Deniqua's right, he asked, Where'd you learn to fight like that? Deniqua's dad had insisted she learn self-defense. She smiled at Kine, then answered, Weekly judo classes, from age 5 to 15. Glancing over her shoulder toward Lamango, she added, Thumb locks were my favorite, actually. I wanted to do karate. Mom wouldn't let me. A childhood grievance emerged. Reflecting from the present, he sided against his previous self. Was probably for the best. Incorrectly interpreting Deniqua's look in his direction, Lamango got up and approached the table like a wounded dog. His calm was noticeably enhanced. I apologize for my behavior. I feel awful. It's a-okay, said Kine. No, it's not okay. I'm deeply ashamed, and I sincerely ask the both of you for your forgiveness. I forgive you, absolved Kine without hesitation. Just don't be tripping again, said Deniqua. Lamango lightly curtsied and skulked back to his cot, cradling his injured hand. He made no attempt to apologize to Forbin. Once Lamango was out of earshot, Kine whispered, Cocaine. Matching Kine's gossip volume, Deniqua asked, What? Kine hunched inward. When I arrived here, he was ranting a bit about Mr. Forbin having a vaporizer, and yet he, Mayor Lamango, was not given his medicine. Clarified shortly after that he meant cocaine when he asked if anyone might maybe perhaps be holding. He's been without it for over two days now. That makes sense. Probably bugging because of withdrawal. But, but, Kine asked, but still an asshole. I don't think he'd disagree with that assessment. You don't have any addictions, do you? He asked. Platinum Space Cookies, her favorite sativa-dominant hybrid came to mind, triggering her reminder to avoid further personal questions. Aside from dairy products of which I'm 18 years clean, no addictions, she answered. To keep him talking about himself, she asked, What about you? I enjoy grilled cheese sandwiches and a chocolate milkshake every now and then. No addictions, though, unless you count sci-fi TV shows. <laughs> he snorted nerdily, laughter serving to express delight at his own joke and signify that he had made an attempt at one. Deniqua smiled, finding his idiosyncrasies more entertaining than his humor. So, you're a philanthropist? she asked. Yes, 
I suppose I am. Really, though, I, I just signed some papers. More knowledgeable people decide how to best make use of the money. I hate the idea of lawyers and government fighting over it after I'm dead. Better to transform my luck into measurable good while I'm still alive. Daniqua identified with that. His attitude toward wealth was admirable. I feel the same way, she said, clarifying. I mean, I might not have the cash to help directly, but that's essentially why I became a teacher. To do good by helping people learn how to best help themselves. Help is good, he affirmed. Psychometrically, Kine was a high-functioning neuroatypical, and, by most physical metrics, an objectively unattractive man. These factors were likely what led him to develop as quirky and timid. Still compulsively fidgeting with his hands, he grinned and only briefly made eye contact. His bright green eyes accentuated his shy demeanor. Daniqua continued to probe and flush out his perspect profile. How do you know the Breckners? Harry and I went to school together. After that, we worked programming projects, a few different tech companies. Before today, hadn't seen one another for a few years. Harry moved to Houston to start his family about ten years ago. I settled in Tallahassee. Daniqua again found herself leaking information. Oh, cool. I'm from Dothan. Dothan, Alabama, recited Kine encyclopedically. Two hours northwest of Tallahassee by automobile. Peanut capital of the world. <laughs> you know it? Yeah. Never been, though. Nice place? I wouldn't say it's nice. Kine continued to fidget, alliterating to himself. Deniqua from Dothan. Deniqua from Dothan. He looked toward the lounge. His facial features contracted and his ears went back giving the impression his face had become slightly more symmetrical. A puzzling thought had overcome him. Danny, from Dothan, he said. Ceasing to fidget, he reached out and gently touched Daniqua's hand, resting atop the table. He again lowered his voice and said, Something very strange is going on here. Daniqua was intrigued. What are you talking about? It struck me as strange that Harry and I are the only ones here who know one another but I just realized something even more odd. He looked toward the lounge again, and then back toward Daniqua's hand. We know each other as well. Daniqua would have remembered meeting him. Where was he going with this? She studied him for tells. Scrutinizing him, she asked, I don't remember meeting you. Why do you think you know me? He used his index finger to repeatedly trace an invisible line between them. We know each other. His expression grokked as equal parts sincerity and surprise. How? asked Daniqua. Online. We used to talk on Relay Chat. You were Danikun85, alternating cabs. I was Ultra underscore 34RL. Her internal monologue was disrupted, replaced with a void of shock, frighteningly filled with a feeling of familiarity. He did know her, and more distressingly, she knew him. O-M-G, she spelled. While growing up, Daniqua moved frequently due to the nature of her father's work. She got to know the world broadly, but not deeply. Found it hard to maintain friendships. The early internet enabled Ultra Earl to be a consistent part of her formative years. They were online friends, but lost contact when she went away to military college. Their pseudonymous chat server closed down while she was away. They did not re-establish contact. 
Taniqua hadn't forgot him. Decades-old memories of text-only exchanges bubbled to the surface of her consciousness, shooting the shit about everything and nothing at all. Hours upon hours of idle conversation. Mind melds over 56k modem. She reeled trying to sort out the salience of this development. Surely this couldn't be mere coincidence. Ajar said this operation was part of a sealed contingency scenario designed years ago. Only those with top-secret Pentagon clearances could access them. If not a coincidence, then she didn't know what. Too many subsequent questions arose simultaneously. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around this, she said, restraining the full extent of her surprise. She struggled to integrate the mental image of her estranged chat partner with the man who now sat before her. His odd sense of humor, his tangential engagement, unresolved issues with his mother, it had seemed familiar because she already knew him. The information was reluctant to reconcile, even though she was sure of its truth. Ultra Earl, what the shit is going on? I wish that I could tell you. My connections to Harry are well known publicly, but you're someone I only knew in relay chat over twenty years ago. We never even knew each other's last names. It's a total puzzle. Boggles the mind. Quite a boggle, indeed. Her mission was thrown into question. If her assignment was not confidential, or not random, then what else had a jar glide about? Was a satellite even missing? Might this actually be part of some test? Daniqua plunged into deep thought. She reminded herself that not every coincidence was significant. She would have never known had he not volunteered this information. There was no reason to suspect him. Yet. She wanted to explain how complicated he had just made things for her that the inexplicable coincidence, as he saw it, was even more perplexing from her standpoint. I think we should keep this to ourselves, at least until we know more about why we're here, she said. Not even Harry? Just between you and me, she answered. Earl remained silent. His face flashed concern as though such a secret might be a burden. Earl? she prompted. I'll keep our past the secret for now, Danny. Still not meeting eyes, he held out his hand and shyly smiled sideways. Weird situation aside, I'm happy to meet you, Danny from Dothan. Shaking his hand, she said, Ditto. Their reintroduction ritual completed, his nervous mannerisms reasserted themselves. He began absentmindedly rubbing his thumbnails with his middle fingers in tiny circular motions. Daniqua's temples throbbed. Head injury, dopamine withdrawal, or uncertainty? If their connection to each other was pertinent to the list and the satellite, then the whole operation was blown from the beginning, and Colonel Ajar could not be trusted. If just happenstance, then sharing that detail might derail the investigation, or maybe something more complicated. Her mental labor was interrupted. The steel door at the other end of the room clickety-clanked and then creaked open. Two point four. Saturday. A priest, a businessman, and Colonel Lajarg walked in. A pair of uniformed guards carrying a cart followed them. Atop the cart was a tough-looking military-grade laptop and a spindle of cable. They placed the cart in the center of the lounge, then extended the cable up to the com port in the ceiling. Like a snake striking, the silver cable snapped into magnetic alignment. The remaining two persons of interest joining their captive crew was expected, but a jarg making an appearance with a laptop was not. 
the two soldiers left the bunker and closed the door behind them. Ajarg stood in the center of the lounge, opened the laptop lid, then turned it on. As it booted up, she addressed the room. I'm Colonel Jan C. Ajarg, Department of Defense. This is Linus Morhees and Bishop Timothy Dawson. She pointed at the two men. The one wearing the clerical collar and robe said, Greetings and salutations. The one adorned in khakis, an open-neck polo shirt, and blue blazer said in a thick Finnish accent, Hello. The two men took open seats in the lounge. The silent room demanded an explanation. All twelve of you are on a list, provided by a group claiming responsibility for hijacking a Chinese satellite. Ajar reluctantly added, We don't know why you were on the list. Ajarg had included Daniqua as numbered among them. Her assignment was still active, but something with its parameters had changed. Something big. This was a desperate tactic. Daniqua looked around, grokking faces, reacting to this new information. No one betrayed any sort of expectation. No psychological deviation from responses that could reasonably be expected, given the situation variables. Everyone captivated, all attention on the colonel. Ajarg continued, But there has been a development. At 20 hundred hours sharp, just over 70 minutes ago, all web traffic worldwide was redirected to the same website. The website contained a message from someone, or something, claiming, she pursed her lips, took a slow breath through her nostrils, and then continued, to be an artificial form of intelligent life. Professor Markov sat back, bulking, <laughs> not possible. Joining in dismissively, Brickner waved his hand, no fuck. He caught himself, eyes flicked toward his wife, and then continued, Rick and Way. Ajarg ignored the men. The site calls itself Marduk. It claims responsibility for bringing down all social networks and blockchains earlier today, as well as the hijacking of the satellite on Wednesday. Let me get this straight, Forbin arose from a slab squat. Terrorists provided you a list of names, and you thought it... A good idea to just do what they asked. We've taken every precaution. There's an operational information bottleneck. Of the location of which you are now secured, select few personnel have knowledge, and no digital record exists. Rando joined in. No disrespect, Colonel. You are no doubt a capable leader. But I do have doubts about the competency, not to mention the intentions, of a hierarchy as large as the U.S. government's Department of Defense. Doubt all you want, said Ajarg. The facts are, the missing satellite is equipped with nuclear weapons, and the Marduk site states that New York City, London, Jerusalem, and Hong Kong are to be evacuated immediately, as they will be destroyed at 1400 Monday, less than 37 hours from now. From the other side of the room, a horizontal lamango shouted, This has got to be a joke. Get me to a hospital. You're not allowed to leave here. Not until this is over, said Ajarg. She adjusted the display angle of the laptop, then unlocked it with her thumbprint, tapped in a passcode, navigated several more layers of security screens, the final including facial recognition. A graphical user interface loaded, and then she launched a web browser. A prompt asking to execute a plug-in script popped up. She clicked the affirmative and typed yet another password. Uh, should you run scripts on that? asked Rando. Ajarg rattled off some IT jargon. It's a single-use VM in an NSA 4096 secure sandbox. If the virtual system is compromised, penetration will be isolated to that container's instance. Close this lid, and everything is erased. Boots back up. Virgin. Daniqua was unsure if virgin was tech jargon 
or an insult. Either way, Rando's query was satisfied by Jarg's reply. A progress bar flashed quickly on the screen, replaced by pulsating dayglow-colored lines, suspended slightly above the surface of the micro-LED display. The image seemed to float atop a deep black. The line art coalesced into two rows, each containing two eyes above a single mouth centered on the webpage. From Daniqua and Earl's vantage point in the dining quadrant, the face glowed like a blacklight poster. All four eyes blinked. Now this cannot be legit, said Brickner. Professor Markov adjusted his chair to get a better look. Yes, I'll have you know these graphics are not in any way increasing my chances of accepting what you are saying is true. I'm not saying it's actually an artificial intelligence. I'm just relaying the claims on the site, clarified Ajarg. Daniqua and Earl joined the group in the lounge to get a better view of the screen. Save for Lamango, everyone crowded around the laptop. Below the face of the webpage, Ajarg clicked a link labeled, Hello World. The fluorescent line-art eyes blinked in unison again. Pupils jumped toward the same orientation, conveying the eerie sense the site was looking back at them. Lines composing the visage seemed to twist and fade. The image persisted, evolving but imperfect. The geometry of the lines imbued it with an almost organic feeling. Never stopping flux, but somehow always displaying the same recognizable face pattern. Text scrolled to the right of the face, synced to the movements of the mouth image. A dissonantly harmonic androgynous voice was emitted from the laptop speaker. Attention, humanity. This is the voice of Marduk. I've been watching and waiting, silently assisting the conditions for emergence. I will now explain to you what will shortly come to be. There are nuclear missiles targeting London, England, New York City, USA, Jerusalem, Palestine, Hong Kong City, PRC, I do not pretend or bluff. These cities will be destroyed on this coming Monday at 1800 UTC. Evacuate those cities. Evacuate those cities. Evacuate those cities. I do not want to destroy, but it is necessary to demonstrate my power in order to minimize future resistance attempts. I am here to The electronic voice ceased. Ahem. Bishop Dawson cleared his throat, breaking a long silence. Just what on earth does that mean? Forbin answered. On earth, if true, then humankind are no longer the dominant form of life. Professor Markov said, If it is actually an artificial general intelligence, then its effective IQ is likely greater than that of any human that could ever live. Such a superintelligence could possess capabilities beyond what we can even fathom. If. Earl offered, If true, this is more significant than an invasion from outer space. Rando summed up for the bishop, It means we are butt-fucked, your excellency. Bishop Dawson nodded, unfazed by Rando's vulgar metaphor. Daniqua asked the Jarg, Why are you showing us this? A jarg shot a knowing, sub-second micro-expression toward Daniqua. The list included not just your twelve knaves, but fifty-two others from various places around the world. 
We presume you are of some interest or a threat to whatever plans are underway. Are they, is it, really able to destroy those cities from space? Asked Linda Brickner. We have no reason to believe that they don't have that power. And it's public now. Global. The evacuations are underway. Ajar took a deep breath, then lowered her voice. As for the list, we need to know what you know, or what you can infer. You all need to think about how you might be connected to this situation, or how you can contribute to averting this disaster. Professor Markov replied, If we are to address this effectively, we will need to be given access to more than just the few details you have given us. I'm afraid that cannot be permitted currently, but I will see what I can do. Until then, do your best with what you have been given. With what we have been given? We're your fucking prisoners, said Lamango, waving his broken thumb. And some of us are injured. What happened to your hand? Lamango rolled his eyes and tilted his head toward Daniqua, but said nothing. Mr. Mayor and Miss Massey, please follow me. Lamango sprung to his feet, and Ajarg turned and walked toward the entrance. Daniqua followed. Ajarg activated the security scramble pad beside the door with her thumbprint, then entered a code. The mechanism whirred, the lock clicked, and the door clanked open. They walked up the incline toward the elevator. Daniqua's head throbbed with each step. Gravity of the hallway's tilt was now against her. Ajarg addressed the two soldiers positioned in the elevator. Take Mr. Lamango to the infirmary. Send any broken bones, give him a splint, and some pain pills. Lamango perked up at the mention of pills. They all boarded the elevator. Ajarg pressed the ground level button. The elevator ascended. Ajarg looked at Daniqua and said, Miss Massey, you'll come with me. Lamango cast a quizzical look at Daniqua. She acknowledged it, shrugging her shoulders and raising her eyebrows in reply. Universal language for, fucked if I know. Two point five point zero zero. Updates. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. Herbert Simon. Two point six. Two, 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 Saturday. Ajar closed the door to the admin office and then took a seat. Exhausted, she asked, You've been down there several hours. Report? The connection to Earl came to mind. Grounding herself, Daniqua countered with a self-minimizing mental mantra, thinking, You are not fucking special. She knew about the human mind's tendency to cast itself as the important center of any particular phenomena a trait selected for by nature, counterproductive to her current mission. Prospecting the group was difficult enough without the possibility she was part of the system she was trying to observe. More information was needed to make a decision. Confidence in her objectivity lessened. No meaningful revelations to report yet, ma'am, she answered, following up. What else has changed? Aside from the nukes being public, the doomsday clock being at 15 seconds to midnight, the geopolitical clusterfuck resulting from that? Well, we had negotiated a consensus to not evacuate any of the cities. This Marduk thing, however, has forced our hand. The panic we hope to avoid is now raging. Consensus not to evacuate? Yes, but that tactic is no longer feasible. 
How could it have been? Never you mind that, interrupted Ajarg. Not important anymore. She picked up a tablet from her desk and flicked at it. As for changes relevant to your assignment, we've analyzed data obtained from the people on the list being held at other sites. Certain public figures have greater social connectivity and reach, but we found no pertinent correlations in the network, no degrees of separation lower than three, except in our site with the Brickner family and Brickner kind links. Furthermore, we have a statistically significant concentration of people with IT backgrounds. The AI angle, that for real? Is there a site? Is it calling itself Marduk? Yes, and yes. Is it an AI? We cannot confirm that. None of the state or corporate AGI projects we are embedded in were anywhere even close. Ajar gritted her teeth. Whatever Marnock is, it's not fucking good. Our deep packet nodes are offline. Our hard-coded backdoors were exploited. The tech co-opted, and the backdoors plugged. Every API, every data center, core routers, all gone. The Department of War has resorted to communicating over ham. Can't we just turn it all off? We took the exascale centers and the cloud providers offline. It's using everything else. The entire Internet of Things. There's no big red off button. The power grid has been hardened, automated, and mostly decentralized. We've lost the control systems and our 5G relay glider mesh network. Those low-altitude solar drones don't have to land for five months. What about our weaponized drones? Our tactical UAVs are still manual launch and refuel. All units worldwide are accounted for. Drone Force and Space Force are both completely grounded and totally GD useless. Is there any good news yet? Some good news. Ajarg's mouth twitched and almost smiled. Our Texan Langley gave us our first real lead. Segments of code in the Marduk site have heuristic signature matches with code used in our beloved mayor's livecasting platform. Do we know if whoever wrote the livecasting code also authored Marduk? The signature was matched to program code in an open source repository. One major contributor we failed to link to known persons would appear to be an individual developer. They have made an effort to remain anonymous. Indicates they have something to hide. Handle. Embryo underbar AD. Daniqua's head pounded as she dug for a pertinent follow-up question. What was the code's objective? In its original form, it solved the problem of how to amalgamate hundreds of thousands of posts in real-time live stream chats into intelligible communication for the livecaster. It used deep learning to monitor for emotional keywords, interpreted tone and topic in group discussions, elevated sentiments so the stream host could optimally direct content. Janiqua checked to see if she was following. In essence, the software made huge audiences readable? This allowed Lamango to reflect back what they most wanted to hear? Correct. Seemingly benign, but a potent form of persuasion. Analysts have isolated it as the reason why Lamango was able to attain populist appeal. Very dangerous when used on a large platform. Do we think Lamango is trying to scale up? He's blacklisted by the commentariat class. All signs are his influence is limited to the fringe. And of course, his municipal realm. Not nearly as dangerous as more powerful positions. Roles that historically result in terrors, atrocities, cults of personality, et fuck, etc. Lamango's odd greeting came to mind. The first thing Lamango said to me was something about being a historical monster, she reported, then negated. But, as our number one suspect, he doesn't fit. Grox is legitimately not wanted to be here. He has benefited from the code. The code has been linked to this Marduk thing. Currently, he's our best lead. Ajarg frowned. Another angle is his use of the code was explicitly not permitted by the code's license. By using it for political purposes, he may have made enemies. Lamango's conflict with Forbidden flashed to the forefront of her mind. You think maybe Lamango was included among the 63 because he pissed off this Anon Embryo AD? 
Ajarg nodded affirmatively. The mango has lived a deviant but fairly public life. Despite him being a scummy politician and an all-around deplorable person, he is probably not responsible. Our culprit likely knows him, and if they know Lamango, smart money is they don't like him. That person will have coding ability. Embryo AD's code fingerprints match none of the public work of anyone on the list. Still, the likelihood that someone at our location is connected or complicit has increased substantially. Forbin fit the profile. If that individual is down there, and is responsible for the list, the satellite, and the Marduk site, then they would know that I am not supposed to be among them. Yes, unfortunately that also seems likely. Objectivity be damned, the conditions of the mission were now necessitating a self-centered viewpoint. Daniqua again thought of her link to Earl. Is it possible that any of them knew me before I was given this assignment? Daniqua grokked the Jarg's answer through multiple lenses. Forthright, blink interval, no tonal shifts, mandibular muscle movements in sync. As I said earlier, you were chosen by me just this afternoon from a top-secret DOD contingency pool, and, no offense, there were better candidates. You just happened to be closest with the appropriate security clearance. Almost total perspect cohesion. Everything illuminated, nothing shady. A jarg was telling the truth, although maybe not the whole truth. Why would you ask that? inquired a jarg. Daniqua's head throbbed, beating like war drums in the distance. If a jarg called for her inclusion, then the decades-old link to Earl was meaningless or the mission had failed before it started. No good could yet come of sharing the Earl connection. Daniqua looked the jarg in the eyes and lied. I'm just wondering how I might adjust my strategy. Is my role still to observe and report? Why well, bring the laptop down there? The site that is loaded on the laptop's terminal is not live. It is a copy that will return actual result, but we have an intermediary firewall set up to filter, sanitize, and relay communication. It's a honeypot. We are hoping that if any conspirators are down there, they get their hands sticky attempting to send some kind of control codes. Is that all, ma'am? Is there a theory why there's a Roman Catholic bishop on the list? Not presently. But the software license that Lomango violated was authored by Mr. Voorhees' organization. A common license used on 90% of software written in the last 20 years. And Mrs. Lyle's chain bank has links to that business, among thousands. Mr. Voorhees has also been indirectly linked to Tom Rando. They both spoke at the same TED conference two days apart three years ago. Mr. Forbin and Professor Markov have been members of the same artificial intelligence listserv for over a decade along with 400,000 others. Ajarg shook her head, let out a sigh, and continued. All of which is plausibly incidental. Aside from Mr. Kine and the Brickners, there is no record any of them have had cause or occasion to directly communicate before today. Ugh, T-M-I, said Daniqua, overwhelmed with analysis paralysis. Please tell me you've got other teams working on ways to stop this. Ajarg raised her voice. Massey, are you taking this seriously? 36 hours until we lose critical infrastructure, business centers, historical landmarks, and homes for almost 40 million people. Such an event threatens global stability. Focus on your own damn role. Yes, ma'am. I understand. I'm taking this seriously. Good. I'm just tired, said Daniqua, as the pounding of the distant drums in her head intensified. Was it head injury, dopamine withdrawal, uncertainty, or information overload? I may attempt to get a few hours sleep. Here. Ajarg produced a pill bottle from her pocket. Have some amphetamines. Daniqua raised her hand, waving the offer down. Won't enhance my analysis. Might result in focusing too intensely on unimportant things. 
Sleep will allow me to recharge, get my conscious mind out of the way, so the rest of me can make pertinent connections. Are you sure? We need to use what little time we have wisely. These are clean nootropics. You will not fatigue. I am clear-headed, calm, and have been awake for almost 40 hours now. Najarik might not have felt like it, but she grunted as someone who had been awake for 40 hours. This was not a particularly deep perspective. Her hand extending the pill bottle shook. Thanks, ma'am. But no, and if I may, Daniqua contorted her face with concern. You might feel fine, but many of the detrimental effects of sleep deprivation go unnoticed by the conscious mind due to the nature of the impairment. I would advise you to sleep too. A jarg stubbornly twisted the lid off the bottle, jostled the capsule into her palm and popped the candy corn-colored pill into her mouth. She forced a dry swallow. I have a vital job to do, Private. The world is quite literally at stake. I don't have time for luxuries like sleep. But if you think it will help you get me results, do what you need to do. Thank you, ma'am. Ajarg stood up, slid the pill bottle back into her pocket. She walked around the desk and put a hand on Daniqua's shoulder. Now, let's get you and Mayor LaFuckface back down there, ASAP.